Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Psalm 91. The words that open Psalm 91 were the words of my prayer 21 years ago on September 11th, 2001. This is where I went to on that day. Psalm 91, the first two verses. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High abides under the shadow of the Almighty. He shall say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my stronghold, my God in whom I put my trust. Those are the words of Psalm 91 that people often are drawn to when they don't know what else to say, when they don't know what else to pray. And these were the words of my prayer 21 years ago. Now, if you are like me and you were born in the 1900s, perhaps you remember September 11th, 2001. I would guess you remember what you were doing on that day. Maybe like me, you had your eyes glued to the TV. You know, there's a generation before my generation who would say, do you remember where you were when JFK, when you heard that JFK had been assassinated, right? November 22nd, 1963. But sort of like for my generation, and I realized 21 years, man, you gotta be in your 30s. If you're gonna remember this, you can remember that day. It was a Tuesday. And I had gotten up and got in the shower, gotten out of the shower when Jenny had told me, hey, there was, uh, there was an accident. A plane flew into a building in New York. And uh, I had just gotten home from a three-week trip in India. I had led pastors gatherings for two different ministries in India, in North India with our friend P.G. Vargas. I had led some pastors meetings for their ministry, uh, IET. Actually, Pastor Brian and Perry are gonna be with P.G. Uh, next year. Uh, PG is a friend of Word of Life Church, a friend of ours. And so I was working in North India with some pastors and also in Central India, Andhra Pradesh. I was there for three weeks and uh, ministering and serving. And I flew back on Sunday, would have been September the 9th. But the funny thing is when I was first working on my itinerary, my friend A.B. Vargas, who's PG's oldest son, was getting married that weekend. And I was gonna stay over that weekend and be there for his wedding. And my original itinerary had me flying, leaving India on September 10th and then flying home September 11th. I had a layover in Amsterdam and I was, uh, as, as we looked at that itinerary after the fact, uh, I would have been in the air leaving Europe the morning of September 11th. And so from what we understand, flights to the US out of Europe were getting diverted to Canada. So I could have been one of those who got stranded up in Canada eh? with our friends up north. And, um, but it didn't work out that way. I ended up flying home on the 9th, a couple of days before September 11th. So Jenny tells me that this plane has flown into a building and you know, we had the TV on in the living room. And so I went and, and I'm watching. And the, the first thing I think when I see that is, well, how could the pilot not see that big skyscraper right there? 
I mean, that's how naive I'm thinking. I'm like, it must be some kind of mechanical failure. I mean, why would someone fly a plane into a building? It made no sense to me. I didn't know, like a lot of people, we didn't know what was going on in the moment, right? Until that second plane hit the second tower. And then on TV, they're talking about terrorism and a terrorist attack. And I remember getting a phone call that we had a church member. This is when I was pastoring in Georgia. Uh, we had a church member who had an adult son working in Manhattan and they, they weren't able to find him, locate him, connect with him. Phone lines were jammed. And this was back in the old days when not everyone had a cell phone, right? And they couldn't get hold of him. And so I said, yeah, we'll pray. And I remember being kind of drawn into that TV and I wasn't even sitting on the couch. I was literally sitting on the coffee table and just staring. And I don't know again what you were doing 21 years ago and maybe you were watching, but I was watching live when, when one of the towers fell. And when I saw that on TV, it's like something in my heart fell. fell. It was it's like my blood ran cold a little bit. And, and it wasn't fear, it was just shock, like, what, what, what am I watching? And so I gathered my things up and I, and I drove out to church and there in one of our back rooms, there's a group of people and they were gathered and they were praying. And I walked in and uh, I, had, I had my Bible with me and, and, and I walked in and there was, there was, there was tears and there was, there was just that, that, that unease in the air, that tension in the air, that uncertainty in the air. And I hadn't developed this habit of praying the Psalms every day, um, but that's what I was drawn to. And so I gathered that group of people and I said, let's pray together. And, and, and I offered this prayer. I prayed Psalm 91. I, I lifted up these words. We, we said together, the Lord most high, he is our refuge. He is our stronghold. When we didn't know what was happening collectively in our country, we believed that it was God in whom we were gonna put our trust that day. What were you doing 21 years ago? Do you remember where you are and what was happening? You know, one of the beautiful things that happened after 9-11 is that they built a memorial at the site uh, where the Twin Towers had stood. And I, and I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing that they have erected a memorial that we might remember. And in our sacred world or our secular world, where not much is really sacred, in our secular world, it seems like memorials are the last sort of sacred spaces, right? So maybe you've been to the 9-11 memorial, maybe you've been to that one, or you've been to Arlington Cemetery, or maybe you've been to the National Mall um, and seen the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall or the Korean War Veterans Memorial or the MLK Memorial. But there's something, there's a sacred feel with memorial places. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. But modern people, we tend to create memorials to remember tragedy. But the ancient people of God, they would create memorials to remember triumph. That is what God had done. The ancient people of God, the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had found themselves as slaves in Egypt. They were the cheap labor force for the empire, making bricks for all of the buildings. And as the ancient people of God, the Hebrews, as they were known, as their numbers began to grow over the years and decades, the Pharaoh was concerned 
that if the Hebrews were to grow in number, they could outnumber Egyptians and overtake the Egyptians. And so life got hard for the Hebrews. The Pharaoh made them continue to make their bricks without straw and then doubled up their quota of how many bricks they had to make in a certain day. And then the, the, the hate, the hostility, truly the racial hate coming from the Pharaoh towards the Hebrews even, even created a situation where the, the sons of Hebrew moms and dads were being killed. It was a tough situation. And so the people of God did what the people of God always do. And they cried out to God and God heard and answered their prayer and sent them a deliverer, Moses, who came to lead the children of Israel out of slavery and into God's promised land. And so, you know, the story, Moses went to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh was like, no. And then there were all these plagues and all this stuff happened. And Pharaoh said, okay, you can go. Take them out. So Moses led the ancient people of God out of slavery, out of Egypt, but they found themselves again pinned in. They found themselves hemmed in with mountains around them and the Red Sea in front of them and the approaching, approaching Egyptian army behind them. And Moses again cries out to God and God does a miracle. God parts the sea, he parts the waters of the Red Sea and Moses and the children of Israel walk through on dry land. God did a miracle. And for the next 40 years, the people of God would wander in the wilderness. And it was a confusing time. It was a frustrating time for both Moses as the leader and the people. People begin to complain like, Moses, why did you bring us all the way out here to the desert? We had a life at least in Egypt, but here we are, we're gonna die here in the wilderness. And Moses would continue to lean on God and get direction from God. And after 40 years, the people of God made it all the way up to the Jordan River. And right on the other side, that was the promised land, the land that God had promised them. And Moses would see the land, but he wouldn't enter. Moses was up on top of Mount Nebo and across the Jordan River, he could see the promised land, but he wouldn't enter it. He would actually die there in the land of Moab. Moses dies, but that's not the end of the story because Moses' right-hand man was Joshua and Joshua was commissioned to take the people of God across the river into the promised land. And so they did under Joshua's leadership, they went to the bank of the Jordan River. And as they brought the Ark of the Covenant, you know, that sacred box that was in the Holy of Holies where atonement was applied, where God's own presence would be seen. When the Ark came up and, and began to pass over the river, the waters of the river split. God did a miracle and they crossed over out of the confusion and the bewilderment of the wilderness and into an abundant land, into a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a, it was a day to remember. It was, a, 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 it was a definitely a day for a memorial. So look at what happens next. This is in Joshua chapter four. Listen to what happens next after they cross through the Jordan River. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. And he told them, go into the middle of the Jordan in front of the ark of the Lord your God. And each of you must pick up one stone and carry it on your shoulder. 
12 stones in all, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. They remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. So the men did as Joshua had commanded. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River, one for each tribe, just as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them to the place where they camped for the night and constructed a memorial there. 12 stones, 12 memorial stones that marked not only a place, but marked an expression of God's faithfulness, that God had been faithful to God's people, bringing them to this promised land. It had been 40 long years of wandering around in confusion, but God was faithful. These 12 stones formed a reminder of God's enduring presence with them. So that as they were growing up in the, in the promised land and kids would ask, hey, what are those 12 rocks about? They could point to those and say, well, this reminds us of God's faithfulness. This reminds us of God's presence. And I think memorial stones are, are a beautiful thing. I think it's a beautiful thing because memorial stones remind us that God's presence was with us in the past, right? So that we can now lean on God's presence here in the presence. Right? God's presence was there in the past and now God's presence is here with us today. Now in present time, we have hope. And when, we, when hope begins to fade away, we can, we can find memorial stones. Look at memorial stones and say, yes, God was with us then. God will be with us now here in the present moment. The heart of Christian spirituality what I mean by that is this life that we're living as followers of Jesus, empowered and enlivened by the Holy Spirit, this kind of life uh, is much about attending to the presence of God right here in the present moment. I think a lot of the work of Christian spirituality is attending ourselves to the present moment, to the presence of God in the present moment right here and right now. And it's a challenge because if we dwell too much on the, the, the regrets of the past or the anxiety of the future, we can be robbed of the beauty and the gifts in this present moment. Because this is when we live, right? When do we live? We live now, right now. This is when life is happening right now. Everything else is memory or imagination, but this is when we live. Have you considered that Obeying God is as simple as obeying God in the present moment, right here, right now. Like, that's it. Like, that really is all you have to do. All you have to do is obey God now. Be aware of God's presence now. Worship God now. Obey the voice of God now. That's it. That's all you got to do. 
It's, it's as simple as that. But though we spend most of our time, and I, and I, and I wanna say that, that I believe we should cultivate practices that keep us focused on the present moment. That's the heart of what we're doing. But that doesn't mean we don't look to the future. Right, because we gotta, we gotta make plans and preparations, right? There's a football game happened 325 p.m. Central time. You gotta make plans and preparations for the future. Right? Our, our family is talking about a big beach vacation next summer. Well, if we're gonna do that, it's gonna happen. We gotta make plans. We gotta look at calendar dates and book a place and figure out travel and save money. So of course it's responsible to spend some of our time looking towards the future but we still wanna remain present to the present moment. And in being present, that also doesn't mean we don't at times look behind us. Just because we're spending most of our time in the present moment doesn't mean that there aren't times when we shouldn't peer into our past and reflect a little bit on where we have been. There's value in that because part of who you are today is your past. Pete Scazzaro has said that Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones, right? So your, your family of origin and, and your experiences in the past shape who you are today. If your life is an unfolding story, then the chapter written today was foreshadowed in the chapters that came before. So there's, there's times in which we should reflect on our past. And I know for some of you, that's scary. For some of you, there are painful memories in your past that you just rather not go there, right? It's much easier to suppress those and pretend like grandpa doesn't live in your bones and to pretend like that stuff doesn't affect me, even though we all know it does. It's so much easier to do that because I know it can be scary. And so what we need is like the ancient people of God, like Joshua and those who crossed the river Jordan, we need some memorial stones. We need a memorial stone so that as we're looking at our past, we can do so without fear, without despair, without giving up all hope. Because you know, the, the Christian life as followers of Jesus, our lives are one of despair and hope, a cycle of crucifixion and resurrection, right? I mean, this is just the way we live. All right, despair and hope is gonna come to all of us. And as we are following Jesus, who was crucified, buried, died, and was raised on the third day, so we go through cycles of crucifixion, suffering, loss, and death, and resurrection, new life. And so it kind of puts us on a cycle of hope and despair. Think about Job in the Old Testament for a second. Job's story was one of hope and despair. And there was a lot of despair. I mean, Job was living large. Job was living a lush life. He had money. He had plenty of stuff and possessions. He had lots of kids in this big family. Everything was going good for Job. And then bam, tragedy strikes. He loses everything, loses all of his wealth, all of his stuff, loses his family. He loses his children. And all along, Job didn't do anything to deserve any of that. He was innocent the whole time, yet he went through horrific pain and loss. And Job, you can see it as he's talking in, in the book of Job in the Old Testament. It looks like Job, by the way, but it's pronounced Job. Just pro tip for you. 
But if you read Job's account of what's happening, he, he goes from a place of despair to a place of hope, right? Plenty of despair with words like, God hates me and angrily tears me apart. He snaps his teeth at me and pierces me with his eyes. Ever felt like that? Ever been with someone who's felt like that? Where everything is falling apart and you're like, why does God hate me? Why is God against me? Job had been there, he'd felt that despair, but he went from despair to hope. Just a couple of chapters later, Job says, but as for me, I know that my redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body, I will see God. Right, Job went from despair to hope. And actually what's beautiful about these words in Job 19 is it's the first foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus, right? So here in the Old Testament, this is some of the first hints at resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus it's the linchpin of our faith. It's what holds everything we believe together. But resurrection is also the second half of this cycle that we experience, right? Of both crucifixion and resurrection. Because if you have the courage to peer into your past, I'm sure you can recall plenty of bad days, plenty of days of crucifixion, plenty of days of suffering and heartache and loss. But the resurrection of Jesus, it's our memorial stone. Jesus' resurrection was not a collection of stones stacked by human beings, but a single stone that God rolled away when life triumphed over death. That's so good, I gotta say it again. The resurrection of Jesus is our memorial stone. And it wasn't a memorial that was created when human beings stacked stones upon one another. Rather, it's when God himself rolled away one stone and life triumphed over death. And so we have a resurrection of Jesus here up on our, our stage. We have artwork to keep it forefront in our minds. We've been given the resurrection of Jesus as a memorial stone. So that when we look into our past, we can do so through the resurrection of Jesus. And it, it changes how we remember things. It can heal us of damaged and painful emotions. Because the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus changes how we think about and how we view the cross, right? In one sense, the crucifixion of Jesus, that historical event, was in one sense, an unjust, inhumane, brutal death of an innocent man, right? Jesus was not the first Galilean prophet in the first century to start a little kingdom of God movement, right? Where he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't the first to do that. There have been other so-called messiahs, Jewish kings, Jewish prophets from Galilee prophesying and saying the same things about the kingdom of God. And they all ended the same way on a Roman cross. So in one sense, we can look at the cross as a failure because in the first century Jewish world, a crucified messiah was a failed messiah. So in one sense, the cross is failure. The cross is injustice. The cross is brutal. But when we look back at the cross through our memorial stone, through the resurrection, 
it changes how we see the cross. The cross is no longer an image of brutality, but it becomes for us an image of beauty. Instead of the cross being tragedy, it becomes for us triumph. And so we can take this memorial stone of the resurrection of Jesus and keep that in view as we both personally and collectively review and reflect upon the past. And I believe if we do so, it will transform things. So for example, if you are thinking back to the loss of someone you loved, someone, has, someone you know has died in faith, when you look back at their death, Jim Sandlin just lost his mom just Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Thursday. I just lost his mom after a, a long, slow decline of her health. So Jim, you can look back at your mom, Betty's death, and you can do so through the lens of the resurrection and say that death is not the end of the story for your mom. That for those of us who die in faith, death is not the end because that memorial stone reminds us that death was defeated by Jesus in his resurrection. In a funeral service, we have a portion that's called the committal. This happens at the graveside when we are committing the body to the ground. And when I am doing the committal, I usually will stand at the head of the casket and I'll read some scriptures and then I'll put my hand on the casket and I read these words from the Book of Common Prayer. I'll say, ensure in certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, we commend to Almighty God, our brother or sister, and then I'll say their name. Because I want those who are gathered around the casket to remember our memorial stone. That those who die in faith, they die in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. This memorial stone, it paints our grief differently. Yes, we weep. Yes, we grieve when those we love die. But this memorial stone, the resurrection of Jesus, it paints our grief differently. So it's something that we can do individually, but it's also something that we can do collectively. So I believe that there is a very particular Christian way to together think back to September 11th, 2001. I think there's a, there's a Christian way, there's a Christian memory of that event because there's also a worldly way of remembering 9-11, right? This is typical. There's a way of remembering 9-11 in such a way that it nurtures hate and anger within us, right? Who then, that kind of remembering then turns to retaliation right? They did this to us. Now let's go get them. And let's don't pretend like that kind of remembering doesn't lead to a certain kind of racism where the hate we feel is towards a certain people of Middle Eastern descent. That's one way of remembering if we allow hate to be nurtured. But there's also a Christian way of remembering 9-11, that keeps in view our memorial stone of the resurrection of Jesus. And we can look back at 9-11, 21 years ago, through the resurrection, and there we can see 
that life truly will overwhelm death. And because of resurrection, we're able to forgive. We can lament and we should, but we're able to forgive those who committed an atrocity because in forgiving them, we are handing them over into the hands of God. And with the resurrection of Jesus as a memorial stone, one of the things that it does is that it points us to our future resurrection, right? Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruits, right? So just as Jesus rose from the dead, we believe at the end, we're gonna confess it here in just a moment when we confess the words of the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body. So we, when we remember things through the resurrection, we're reminded that there's a future resurrection coming. And when we think through horrific events like 9-11, those who committed evil acts, we don't have to retaliate. Our responsibility is to put them in the hands of God, knowing that God will do what is fair and right and just with them. That's a part of this future resurrection. Check out what Jesus said here in John chapter five. Jesus said, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, that is the son, that's Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Do not, some of you are marveling out here, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, this is a Christian memory of 9-11. It's a memory through the resurrection of Jesus that reminds us that there is coming a future resurrection. Because Jesus said, don't marvel at this for an hour is coming. Because remember, Jesus did say that he hadn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But in the end, when Jesus comes, he will judge the living and the dead. And so this resurrection in the future is not just a resurrection for us, but all who have died will rise again and there will be this resurrection of life and this resurrection of judgment. And in final judgment, God will take care of evildoers and we trust God to do what is right. So we keep the resurrection of Jesus in view. It's our memorial stone that we turn to time and time again. And the resurrection of Jesus doesn't dispel every doubt. The resurrection of Jesus, it, it won't make sense. It won't help us make sense of everything, but keeping the resurrection of Jesus in view fills us with life, the kind of life that washes us of the stench of death. And so with the resurrection of Jesus in view, our past can be healed. We can, we can experience healing from damaged emotions and painful memories. With this memorial stone in view, we have peace today here in the present moment and we have hope for the future. Amen. We have not only the resurrection as a memorial stone, but we also have communion. Holy communion is for us a place of holy remembrance. Remember when Jesus was gathered with his disciples in that final meal before he was arrested, he was at the table and he took bread, he broke it and he blessed it and he shared it with his disciples. And he said, eat this, all of you, 
in remembrance of me. One of the reasons here at Word of Life, why we receive communion week after week is because we want to be schooled in holy remembrance. We want to remember that the pinnacle of human history happened 2000 years ago. That when we look at the cross through the resurrection, we see that this was the day that King Jesus was enthroned, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And so we come to the table of the Lord today to remember. We come to the table of the Lord today to confess our need for Jesus. We call this communion because this is one of the ancient ways that we commune, we have common union, we connect with Jesus Christ. And so for those of you online with us, I'll encourage you to gather some communion elements because we want you to participate with us here in the sanctuary. And if you are in the building in just a moment, we're going to stand together and then we're gonna confess our Christian faith. And so you might be new here and you might think, well, is this for me? Yeah, it's for you, you're invited. And we're gonna, we're gonna give you the words for this creed. You're like, yeah, but I, I believe in God and Jesus, but I don't know about all this stuff. Yeah, join the club. I don't know about all this stuff either. But I, I'll tell you this, if you'll stand with us and you'll confess the words of, of faith that are, that are in this creed. And then after that, we'll pray a prayer together. It's a prayer of confession, confessing our sins. If you do that with us today, and I believe you can experience the resurrected, the crucified and resurrected Jesus who can rescue you, who can give you peace today. And so everyone is invited. So I will invite you now to stand up with me and let's prepare ourselves for communion after we confess our Christian faith and, and pray this prayer of confession, then you'll be released to come down and, and here in the front, there are these stations and you'll hear someone holding a basket of bread and you'll hear them say, the body of Christ broken for you. Remember that that's how love is displayed. Remember that Jesus came for us in our salvation. Remember all that Jesus has done for you through his death and resurrection. Take a piece of that bread. And someone will be holding a cup and they'll say, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take the bread, dip it in the cup, eat it and taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts now by joining our voices together and making this ancient confession. We call it the Apostles' Creed, the very earliest summation of Christian belief. Let's let the words of this creed be our confession of faith today. Join me as we confess our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, amen. Now join me, let's offer our prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed 
by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. I have good news for you. God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Now we come to the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord's will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. 